Hospice is just a great philosophy of care to keep people comfortable at their homes and help them live their life the way they want to live their life for however long their life is going to last. Welcome to another episode of Advocates in Action, a podcast created by the National Patient Advocate Foundation, a nonprofit that develops initiatives promoting equitable access to affordable quality health care through policy action and partnerships. I'm your host, Ashley Freeman. Today, I'm honored to speak with James Johnson, who is a social worker at MultiCare Home Health and Hospice. When he isn't educating his patients and caregivers about the benefits of hospice, he's spending his time with his family and loved ones in the woods and exploring the beaches. Thank you so much, Jamie, for joining us here today. Can you tell me a little bit about you know, your role and responsibilities as a social worker. I work based out of Tacoma, Washington, in Washington State, with the Multicare Home Health and Hospice organization out there. I'm one of the hospice social workers. So I visit people and families in their homes that have terminal illnesses and support their families, usually through their loved one's death, but sometimes they'll come off of hospice uh, because they just don't meet the eligibility requirements for Medicare, and I help them with that transition too. Um, I also will help with the home health aspect of the home health and hospice department. So I'll do home visits for people that might have gotten home from knee replacement surgeries, or maybe they fought, they fell and went to the hospital and they need some more support in the home. Uh, so I'll go out once usually and talk with them about resources, things to keep them basically from going back into the hospital and for them to live their life the way they need to. What drew you to hospice and end-of-life care? That's such a special field. When I started off thinking that I wanted to help people in, um, I guess, high school, I always envisioned myself working with kids. In college, I had a professor kind of push us to work with a population we hadn't worked with before. So since I worked with kids, I chose to work with people who were older, you know, uh, 60s, 70s plus. So I volunteered a little bit with an agency out there, and it went great. I met this really wonderful uh, gentleman. I raked his leaves, which were like three, like he had like three feet of leaves in his backyard. He came outside and started reading his paper, and then um, he went back inside. And I was like, I think he wants to talk a little bit. So I walked over, and we just started chit-chatting about scrubs and character archetypes in the show. And uh, we talked about that for a bit. And that's when I learned I really loved working with old people. Aww. Then... I decided to push the envelope a little further and volunteer with a hospice agency in the Newport News area of Virginia. I had some great experiences with people with terminal illnesses. There was this one gentleman who I visited for about two years before he passed away. And I was with him when he passed away. My volunteer coordinator called me in between classes and was like, hey, you know, Mr. C is asking for you. Can you come and sit with him and his family. Our visits mostly consisted of talking about old baseball games that he loved and had recorded and talking about the Bible, which he knew a lot about and I know nothing about. And, you know, big, big kind of existential questions and what it all means and stuff. Going on walks around his neighborhood, talking about his family. He passed away when I was there with him and his family was there. And afterwards, they, you know, we all hugged and they were so happy that they could be there with him. And I was like, all right, this is what I want to do. For people who aren't familiar with hospice, how would you define hospice and the care that is provided? Hospice is a great support for anybody who has terminal or life-limiting illness. The entire time that you're having staff, you know, clinicians come visit you, which include a nurse, 
a social worker like me, a certified nursing assistant or a CNA, um, and then a volunteer come out to meet you in your house, talk with your family, talk about supports, help keep you comfortable at home. Every disease that people can get has guidelines for Medicare that tells them kind of what to expect at different stages. As long as people meet that eligibility for their diagnosis, they can stay on services for quite some time. And typically when people do come on to hospice services, they live for a longer time because they're not trying to get out into the community, go to doctor's visits. They're staying in their home and we all know we love our homes. They are getting really good symptom management from the nurses that can come out 24 seven. Sometimes people stay on for hospice for six hours if they have a really acute illness. Sometimes they stay on for six years. For example, I had a lady who came on to hospice following a fall for her hip. She broke her hip. Family didn't want to get it healed. She was too old to get surgery. So she was in her bed and, you know, not, wasn't doing so great. And then she started recovering. She started feeling better. She started eating more, drinking more. Or she wanted to get up and start walking around. So we did a physical therapy and occupational therapy referral. So she came off of hospice services, was in home health. So doing PT and OT at home for, I think, six months. And then she came off and she thrived for, I think, like two years. And then she came back on for a stroke. And she had uh, difficulty swallowing and communicating, but uh, really acutely after a stroke. But then she bounced back and she said that she wanted to do some traveling. She wasn't quite ready to stay in one place. So we said, okay. She did some traveling for, I think, like six months or something like that. And then she had another massive stroke. And she was on hospice for about a year following that because um, she bounced back a little um, after she came back on the hospice. And then she declined pretty steadily after that. So all in all, she was on and off hospice for about six years. Wow. I think it takes a very special person to be able to handle and navigate both mentally and emotionally working with people who are in a time in their life that is so difficult and can be so scary and uncomfortable, you know, and specifically when people come to you, they might be in shock about their, their diagnosis or in shock with, you know, what the doctors are telling them. So how do you navigate those difficult conversations with the patients and with their families and loved ones? It really depends on the person. Typically, I tell families, you know, I explain to the families what my role is and how I uh, try to meet them and, you know, my views on, you know, fear of the unknown. Because in, in my opinion, largely people are fearful of what they don't know. And that fear can come up in a lot of different ways. And if you ask any, anybody, it doesn't matter how old, how young, um, you know, anybody, if you ask them what, how they envision that they're going to die, they'll say, I want to die asleep in my bed when I'm 117 years old, you know? So to me, that, to me, that speaks that people just want to live a life that's been full. They want to know that they've been loved. And when they die, they want to be pain-free. So when I talk to families, I say, Hey, you know, my role is to help guide you on this process and talk to you about resources and supports and what's out there for you if you need help. But otherwise, I'm just a friendly visitor for you to talk to about how you're feeling about the situation, you know, help kind of translate some of the medical ease that gets thrown around, talk to you honestly about what's going to happen with your diagnosis. 
And most people really respond well to that. You know, I, for some families that have a harder time with that, I say, you know, you don't really have the time to kind of skirt around issues or not, you know, not ask the pointy questions because you have a limited amount of time and energy and I want to be respectful of that. And if you want to be with your family, I want to tell you how to be with your family in the best way possible. If you want to go on a trip, I want to tell you how to go on a trip in the best way possible. So people usually typically uh, really respond well to that, especially if they know that I'm just going to talk to them honestly and compassionately about what's going to go on and what's going to happen. I think that's an interesting concept, the fear of the unknown. What has been people's biggest barriers when it comes to the fear of the unknown? What has been something that troubles people? The biggest questions are typically, is it going to be painful? When people tell me that, I say, okay, that's great. You know, um, I can't speak for certain about what's going to go on. From the experience that I've had with people, typically they're very calm. They're very peaceful. There's lots of medications that we can provide to alleviate any pain or, you know, anxiety or any other form of discomfort. And then people are like, oh, okay, great. And then people's families are also really concerned. So I tell them some of the best things that you can do are talk to your loved one about their life, about the impact they've had in, in your life or in the community, and just really engage in a pretty deep and meaningful discussion about the impact of their life. In my experience, I've noticed that most people just want really two things at the end of their life. And that's to know that they've been loved and that they've made an impact. So everything else kind of falls by the wayside. I've seen people from very high social class and you know they've had all their needs met by everything, but their children have been involved and they've been just sorrowful because they, you know, they wish their kids visited more often or something. And then I've seen people who are in a lower socioeconomic class. They have a wonderful support of family and friends and they just know they've made such an impact. So really, those are the two big ones. And in situations where you do have a family member or a caregiver who is very vocal and making lots of decisions on the patient's behalf, how do you navigate that? How do you have those conversations to say, hey, like, let's think about what the patient really wants as opposed to what you want because you love and care for this person so much? A lot of times families that we have and patients that we have are older. They typically have a diagnosis of uh, dementia or some other cognitive issue that impacts their ability to make decisions for themselves. So then we have to rely on the legal decision maker. However, when somebody is capable of making their decisions and needs known, I like to go off of what the patient can do and say, you know, I always encourage patients to talk about what they want, what they're hopeful for. And if a patient's wants and needs are different than their caregiver's wants and needs and desires, you know, I reinforce, say, hey, you know, we're here for, your, you know, your wife, your dad, your sister whoever, you know, our needs as healthy people are different than their needs as the person that's facing this life-limiting illness. A lot of times there's some friction 
between patients and families and their caregivers um, between like what they need in terms of nutrition what they need in terms of getting up out of their bed, what they need in terms of pain control. Um, and sometimes there's bigger, bigger differences. Um, you know, I have had a couple of people who have a very strong faith and they want to use medical aid in dying. It's legal in several states. It's legal here in Washington. A lot of patients might ask questions about it or might want to know more about it. And their families might have a really hard time with that because it goes against their cultural background or how they were brought up or their religious background. And when I talk to those families, I say, you know, I know this is a hard topic, but this is not about the broader meaning for your faith or background. It's a, it's a resource that your loved one wants to use. And we might have a hard time with it, but we need to support them in their decision. We talked a little bit about how culture can impact the care that caregivers and loved ones want for their family. And so I know that a big part of culture is food and nutrition. Does that ever pose a problem or any complications, you know, during this end of life care where sometimes people can't even physically eat? Absolutely. You hit the nail on the head. So much of culture all over the world is about food and nutrition, and meals, and the community that, that, that get built up between sharing a meal, either as a family or together in your community. It's a huge, huge issue. Whenever anybody gets sick, when you're a kid, you know, you get the flu, you get fed comfort foods, you get lots of fluids like water or tea. So approaching that with people that are having difficulty eating is huge. A lot of patients will have a really hard time with that. You know, they'll think they have to eat or they think they'll have to drink. And it's like, no, your body doesn't need the same amount of food and nutrition and water that a healthy person's might. It can be very difficult to get adult family home care providers on board with that because they're like, no, no, this is this is what needs to happen. It's like, no, no, their, their needs are different. They're not swallowing anymore. Their bodies physically can't do it. Um, another thing that will happen and will come up because of the nutritional aspect is like, well, if if they're not eating, then I'm killing them. You know, if they're not, if they're not eating what I'm giving them, then I'm, then I'm killing them. And it's like, nope, that's not true at all. You know, mm -hmm. um, their bodies physically cannot swallow the food. They're more often spending time resting. So they're not using up the energy the way that we do. Mm -hmm. And whenever I have had challenges with families and patients about the nutritional aspect, I say, you know what, you can always show your love by offering them food, offering them their favorite meal. It's up to them to decide if they want to eat anything. Um, you know, you can hold up a fork to somebody's mouth. If they open their mouth, great. See if they want to take a bite. If they turn their head or close their mouth, you know, that's a nonverbal cue that they don't want anything. I'll also talk with families about their loved one's swallowing ability. Oftentimes when people are having swallowing difficulties, they'll cough when they're eating or drinking. They might cough some of it back up. And I tell them, I say, you know, that's, that's a sign that their body isn't handling what they're taking very well. So maybe we need to try, you know, a different textured food, like mechanical soft, chopped up, or pureed. People don't realize how much energy it takes to eat, to chew, to swallow, to an extent also breathe. There's also a lot of like nostalgia and memory and love in meals shared with the families. 
I had a patient once that loved a biscotti with their coffee in the mornings. So I told family, I said, hey, why don't you have like a coffee date? The patient wasn't really eating and drinking much anymore because they didn't want to, but they loved having that coffee time with their family and seeing everybody enjoy it. So um, honoring and remembering those traditions surrounding meals and food can be really important to to talk with families about and um, can be really helpful in kind of easing that pain that happens when somebody stops eating and drinking. Thank you for bringing clarity and understanding to hospice and what your role is as a social worker to empower each family. You know, this whole season is really about case management and all the support systems that are built to help people navigate the healthcare system from beginning to end. So your episode fits perfectly right into that as an amazing resource for people to now know about. And for anyone listening whose eyes were really open to the benefits and resources out there for them to utilize, I think it's really important for us to mention that Having these conversations with loved ones and even making a plan for yourself while you are fully alert and healthy and can communicate your preferences is super important. You know, and we have amazing resources on our website on how to make a plan. You know, so Jamie, what are some suggestions that you have for people in preparation for that time and those types of conversations? Yeah, that's great. I think talking and planning and sometimes even paying and solidifying funeral homes or final arrangements is really important and can be the greatest gift that a healthy person can give somebody that they love. It's taking away the burden of having to think about what this person wants. There's a great document that people who are healthy can complete called Five Wishes. It just talks about what you want in terms of how you at the end of your life you want to look. There's no right or wrong answer or decision. It's just the decision you make for yourself. Another thing is that all those wishes can change. Writing down those decisions on a legal document can give your family and your loved ones the best peace of mind to make sure they're honoring your wishes. I'm Ashley Freeman, and thanks for listening to this episode of Advocates in Action. If you haven't yet, please subscribe, review, and share this podcast. Your support is greatly appreciated. We enjoy connecting with our listeners, so please visit our website at npaf.org slash podcasts for show notes, resources, and ways to engage with us on social media. Thanks for listening.